0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 98 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well. And like we always do at the top of every episode, we want to thank everyone who's left us a review or reached out to us on social media. We, as always, really appreciate it. It's true. I feel like you guys might be getting tired of hearing that, but we just really do appreciate it.
1: No, we do. And uh, every single one of you guys, you're great. And we always are excited to bring you the latest and greatest episodes.
0: And recently, we have gotten like the best reviews ever. So I'm going to be posting them on social media because they just make me feel happy.
1: They deserve a shout out. (laughs) Yes,
0: for writing such like awesome things. Absolutely. That'll be up soon. And we especially want to thank our patrons on Patreon. We recently just released an episode on the DeFeo murders on there, and everyone loved it. So we're just really happy to bring cases like that to our patrons, because that's kind of like our always our relaxed, like extra fun episodes.
1: Yeah, you know, just like, you know, let your hair down (laughs) type of episode, you know?
0: Yeah, with that one, John had uh, a margarita while recording that one. So it was pretty interesting, (laughs) I have to say. Yeah, it's
1: John was there in the flesh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And of course, like always, we'll be thanking all of our new patrons at the end of this episode. So if that's you, listen for your name. Okay, so are you in the mood for some murder, John? Always. Our story today takes us to Knox County, Indiana, where in 1975, a couple was approached while together late at night on Lover's Lane. Not once, but twice. The woman was kidnapped and her date subdued. He was helpless as he watched the girl he so desperately hoped to be his girlfriend get dragged into another car when he told his story the following day not many in vincennes indiana believed what he had to say really wasn't adding up police say the suspect 31 year old jeffrey dahmer has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment we are all evil In some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Vincennes was first settled in 1702 as a French fur trading post. It is the oldest city in Indiana. So as you can imagine, it's very rich in its history. The town is filled with historical homes and buildings that date back to the early 19th century. In fact, the first brick home that was built in the town was built by William Henry Harrison, America's ninth president, and the once governor. Harrison is not really at the forefront of American history because he died 31 years into his term um, of typhoid or pneumonia. They're not really sure. But uh, he's most known for creating a constitutional crisis of who was going to take over and obviously, you know, the vice president's going to take over once the president dies or is assassinated. But the order of secession afterwards was never established until Harrison died. So that was his contribution into American history.
1: The sad part is, and I, and I always, I love history. I know nothing about him. I didn't even know that he was a president. Is that bad?
0: Well, not really, because he was only president for 31 days, so.
1: Yeah, because I didn't even know about him at all, so.
0: Well, <laughs> number nine. Vincennes is not just the first city in Indiana, it is home, in fact, to many firsts. The picturesque Midwestern town that sits beside the Wabash River was home to the first Catholic and Presbyterian churches in the state, the first county, the first newspaper, the first bank, and the first medical society. In 1802, Vincennes University, a junior college, was established in the city. And those who call Vincennes home are good, salt-of-the-earth people. But even they know that their town is rich in a history more than just firsts. It's rich in a history regarding captivating murders, stretching from 1911, when two brothers were accused of killing their father, to a string of co-ed murders at the junior college. The murders never cease to shock the town that has deep religious roots. And that is what we're going to cover today. One of the worst crimes ever seen by the residents of the state of Indiana. In 1974, Sherry Gibson moved to the city to become a data processor for a nearby hospital. Despite starting over fresh in a new city at 23 years old, Sherry quickly made a lot of friends. Someone that knew her said that it was impossible not to like her. She was sweet and very kind to others just a good girl one of her new friends was eager to set her up with a man named lindy alton so alton was from a really well-respected farming family in the area and when introduced to sherry uh, he was 24 at the time he was still living on his family's farm and he was working at his brother's gravel pit those that knew him described him then as a shy but very polite young man The kind of boy you would want your daughter to date, another put it. So those are all like really, these seem like two really nice people. Yeah, it does. They dated through the fall and winter of 1974. However, it was clear to those that knew Sherry that she was not as into Alton as much as he was into her. So during those months, Sherry would go on dates with other men. This, of course, was something that Alton knew about, like he knew they were just casually dating and they weren't exclusive, but still Sherry was the only one that he chose to see during this time.
1: Hey, like that just happens sometimes, you know, some you're always going to have sometimes, especially in like just dating relationships, right? You're always going to have one party liking that person more than the other. You know what I mean? Like, like it's always never equal. I feel like
0: I know what you mean. Like one person likes someone more.
1: Yeah. And I think that's normal.
0: It is normal. It just sucks to be the person that likes the other person more.
1: It's true. But, you know, he made the choice not to, you know, see uh, see anybody else.
0: So in February of 1975, Alton admitted to some of his friends that he was going to ask Sherry to take their relationship to the next level and date him exclusively because he was really falling for her. So that brings us to the night of February 28th, 1975. Alton took Sherry on a date that night. He picked her up in his car and the two of them went to dinner. Once they finished the dinner, they drove around Vincennes and eventually ended up in a bar where the two shared a few drinks. By all accounts, they were not intoxicated when they left. The couple must have decided that they wanted some privacy because they drove out to what would be considered a lover's lane by locals in the area. I mean, it's not... A lover's lane in the traditional Zodiac kind of way, if you know what I mean. It's more of like a dirt pull-off from the main road that only one vehicle could drive down. So it wasn't entirely remote because a car that's driving on the main road would still be able to see you pulled off to the side.
1: Okay, but it still gave you a little bit of privacy, so which is probably why it's like lover lover's lane-esque
0: Yes, you could, if you drove all the way down this kind of like dirt inset, half of your car would be shaded by trees. Okay. And the reason why this couple chose this spot was most likely because it was the only place they would be afforded privacy. Alton, of course, still lived with his parents and Sherry, even though she had her own apartment, had a roommate.
1: Okay. Yeah. So they just want to be left alone, which you know makes sense.
0: Yes. But that night, Alton and Sherry would not return to their respective homes. Because they were adults, nobody really thought anything of this. I mean, it makes sense. Like, if you're Sherry's roommate, you just think, okay, she went on a date and she most likely ended up spending the night with him and vice versa for Alton's family. So that's why they weren't thought of as missing that night or even early that next morning.
1: Okay. I mean, mean, that checks out. I mean, that's kind of what... It is.
0: Yeah, they're 23 and 24. So it makes sense. It was obvious the people in Sherry and Alton's life wanted the couple to make things official because even though Sherry's friends knew that she wasn't 100% into Alton, they thought he was a wonderful man. So they thought eventually that he would make Sherry happy. And that's kind of why they didn't say anything or like raise any alarms because they were happy for the couple that they most likely were spending the night together. However, the night was anything but happy for the potential young couple. The next morning on March 1st, a farmer was working on his property. At 8 a.m., the lover's lane that the couple thought they were parked on revealed itself for what it really was. A patch of flattened dirt off a main road, which was directly in view of the farmer's field. So the farmer knew what this area was used for on occasion, and he chuckled to himself. He wondered if a couple of kids had gotten stuck there overnight and were potentially sleeping in their car, or if it was just a motorist who was stranded. Either way, he went over to the vehicle to see if they needed any help. At first, things seemed like they were okay. There was nothing physically wrong with the car, so the farmer got closer. He was trying to look into the windows to see if anyone was in the car. Maybe they had fallen asleep because they were stuck overnight. He was leaning into the vehicle when all of a sudden he heard banging and guttural screams coming from the car. He jumped back, startled. Where had that come from? He didn't see anyone inside the car. Then an intense banging came from the trunk. And when he looked around, he noticed that a hand was sticking out of the left rear taillight. Whoever was in the car must have just knocked it out.
1: You know that that would be the most terrifying thing. If you went outside our house, there was a car there. And you walk over to see what's up with the car being there overnight. And that happened.
0: Oh, no, I would be so <laughs> You <scared>. would run. <laughs> I know. I probably wouldn't have even checked on the car. Probably. <laughs> I'm like, this is a trap.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going back inside now. <laughs> um,
0: I think that it's cr- to think like, okay, I'm going to go just go check on this car, make sure everyone's all right. And then, oh, my God, you're finding someone locked in a trunk.
1: Well, it's such an odd thing, not to mention that you got to remember, this is before the time where you used to be able to pull an inside latch and let yourself out.
0: Yeah, 1975.
1: You know what I'm saying? This is the time period where it's just like, you locked that trunk, you're not getting out. Imagine um, that that was the way it was.
0: I know. L- well, like, that's crazy. This is crazy. one of the reasons why they made they, that lock well, <laughs>
1: Exactly. It's <laughs> crazy, though.
0: So the farmer tried to open the trunk, but he was unable to do so. It was locked. So he got some tools that he had with him on his nearby tractor and handed them one by one to the man inside the trunk. Eventually, and with a lot of difficulty, the person was able to break themselves out. When the trunk finally opened, a dazed, terrified Lindy Alton emerged. He was delusional and kept asking the farmer where Sherry was. It took a while for the farmer to calm Alton down and get the full story from him. He was in an intense panic at this time. And now Alton had suffered a really bad head injury when he was a child. And because of this injury, he developed a stutter. But his stutter got better with age, but it really came out when he was exasperated or he was in highly emotional situations. Which, I mean, I would think this constitutes as a highly emotional situation.
1: Yeah, I think so, too.
0: (laughs) So um, it took him a long time to get his thoughts out. And the farmer eventually calmed him down enough to hear what had happened to him. Alton told the man that someone had taken his girlfriend and he didn't know where she was. The farmer told the man to wait by the car so he could run back to his house and call the police so the farmer called the police at his house and then went back to the scene and officers arrived within 20 minutes of the initial call that came in which is a pretty fast response time for like getting out to a farm
1: that's true
0: when they got to the scene they were greeted by the farmer and a still visibly upset lindy alton because of his emotional state end the difficulty of his stutter, it took Alton hours to tell investigators everything that had happened. He said that last night they had pulled into the spot the car was still in. They were kissing when someone pulled in behind them. A man walked up to the car and knocked on the window. He asked if they knew how to get back to Vincennes. Alton thought, This was totally a strange situation, but being a polite person, he gave the man directions. The man thanked him and walked back to his car, backed up and returned to the road. He did head in the direction that Alton told him to go in. So he kind of thought, "Okay, that's over. It was strange the man asked for directions, but he was gone. So that kind of put him at ease. He said that after the man left, they stayed for another hour or so. And he knew that because when the man came and asked for directions, he did notice that it was around 2 a.m. And then when they looked back up at the clock after they were done, like making out and stuff, it was 3 a.m. So at this point, Alton was like, "Okay, let's kind of go home. I'll drive you home and then I'll go home myself. At this point, Alton was reversing to head back to the road and drive Sherry home. But when he turned around to back up, he noticed the car behind him. And it just turned its lights on. So, like, he didn't know there was a car behind him because its lights were off. That's weird. It was the man who had asked for directions the first time. The car came back, but with its lights off.
1: Okay, this is getting creepy.
0: Very So, the man that had asked for directions about an hour before was coming up to the window again. But this time he had a gun. He told Alton to get out of the car. He instructed him to face the vehicle, lean forward onto it, and spread his legs and arms wide. He then put the gun to his head. A second person then got out of the passenger side of the other car and ran to the passenger side of Alton's car. It was a woman. She had a knife on her, and she reached in and grabbed Sherry. Alton said he called out, don't hurt my girlfriend, and he heard the woman call back to him. We aren't going to hurt her. And before he could respond, he felt a crushing blow to his head. The man that was holding him at gunpoint pistol whipped him. He fell to the ground. He then felt the man reaching around his body and like kind of feeling where all of his pockets were. And he really wasn't thinking because he had just been hit in the head so hard. He was wondering, like, what's this man doing? And it took a second. But then he realized that he was looking for his wallet. And the man eventually found his wallet in his back pocket and then picked Alton up from the ground and brought him around to the trunk of the car. And there was a small rope in the car. So he like crudely tied Alton up just really quickly and then forced him into the truck. The man yelled at him not to even think about getting out. And then he locked him inside. So when the police heard this story, they were very skeptical. When it came out, Alton's story was not as streamlined as I just told you. It took hours to get the initial story out, but then two additional days for him, like remembering details. He was confused about times and the order things took place in. And, you know, you could say that has something to do with him being hit in the head or it just being a crazy event. His adrenaline was rushing. Or he might not be telling the truth. I mean, this is all of the things that investigators are thinking.
1: You also have to try to remember, too, they're also trying to piece the story together as it's coming in because he's stuttering. He's nervous. Yeah. So like you're trying to I could imagine they're not being very kind because it's just like they're probably looking at this guy like, you know, it's like spit it out already kind of thing. You know, like, you know, tell us already. And he's trying to gather himself to try to, like, tell the full story. So that could also be it, too. Yeah. You know?
0: And something else didn't jive with Alton's story. And that's the physical evidence. On the night in question, the weather was really bad. It had been raining. So the following morning, the ground was soft and wet. So police checked the dirt off the uh, dirt road and they expected to see tire tracks. Ones in addition to the tire tracks that Alton's car had made. But there weren't any. So there should have been tracks from the second vehicle. But there there was only Alton's tracks. And the tracks of the Farber's tractor, but just it didn't go far into the dirt road, just a little bit into it. Those were the only tracks that were found.
1: Okay, so now this is odd because it's not adding up. The like nice. story's not starting to make sense.
0: So now I know what you're thinking. Police should have been in high gear looking for Sherry Gibson, instead of focusing on the story of Lindy Alton. But unfortunately, they did not need to search for Sherry. They already knew the fate of the woman. And the night before she had even been reported missing, a fire had been reported about seven miles down the road from the lover's lane that Alton and Sherry had parked at. It was a large abandoned home far from the road, the remnants of the historic roots that ran so deep in Vincennes. Once the blaze was controlled, volunteer firefighters stepped into the building. Beside an overturned chair on the main floor was the body of a woman. She was dead and not from a fire. There was nothing on her persons to identify her, so she went into the system as a Jane Doe. She would remain a Jane Doe until the next morning at 8 a.m., When a farmer called the police about a man he found in his trunk, rambling about a missing girl. When police received the woman's description from Alton, they knew most likely that she was their Jane Doe. One missing girl, one found. They were connected. I mean, they're seven miles apart within the same night. It just makes sense. So in looking at all the information they had in front of them, the investigators decided that Alton's story just did not sit right with them. It was bizarre, and the physical evidence didn't support his story. The most simple explanation is always true. Alckham's razor, right? Right. So they asked Alton to come in again and retell the story. While he was there, they asked him to take a lie detector test. He agreed took the test, and the results came back inconclusive. So they were thinking, okay, we really need to keep looking into this guy. They wanted to find out more about the couple's relationship. So they talked to close friends and family of both Sherry and Alton. They learned that Sherry had wanted to actually break things off with Alton, but she just couldn't because he was so nice. And really, she was so nice. Like, she just couldn't hurt him. And according to Alton and those who knew him, things were going wonderfully.
1: The, you know, oh, this is so weird. I feel like I'm getting like stalker vibes like from him. Like, like well, was, that's stalker vibes, but you know what I mean. Like I think He was too into He's her. he's too into her, too obsessed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, like that's exactly what investigators were thinking. Like, had he asked her to date exclusively that night, and then she said no, and the nice guy finally snapped.
1: Yeah, sounds about right, right? I mean, I, I that's where my head's going with this.
0: Well, crazier things have happened, so oh investigators are like... Yeah,
1: over less as well.
0: Yes. But the more investigators talked to him, meaning Lindy Alton, the more they poked and prodded and antagonized him and even made fun of him for his stutter, which is so sad. Um, they realized that Sherry's assertion had been correct. He was just a really nice guy. And they kind of stopped looking at him as their number one suspect like he was still on the table as a suspect but they were like okay we can't get blinders on which is a really great way to think when it comes to an investigation and that's the way things are supposed to be you can't think okay lindy alton is the most obvious suspect so let's just investigate him as a suspect the investigators kind of kept their minds open which is wonderful
1: I mean it really is especially because I mean you've done the you know you've done your due diligence with the most likely suspect and it's not like you're ruling him off the table I mean it's easy to get a hold of him and bring him back in for for more questioning if need be but like to shift focus I think is is the key here
0: right and investigators were thinking whoever did this to Sherry because she was brutally attacked and we're going to talk about what the emmy um, report is going to say had to have been a deviant and or had hate in their heart for her and from all accounts it just didn't seem like that was the kind of guy alton was and his reactions to everything that was happening did seem pretty genuine yeah i mean you can say there was an inconclusive lie detector because he was in such an emotional state still
1: That's true. I mean, you're not going to get the right read off of uh, a lot of tetra tests when you're like that.
0: So, of course, the fact that they knew the person who did this to Sherry was a horrible human being is going to be based off of the information that the investigators received from the medical examiner that performed Sherry's autopsy. Before her death, Sherry had been brutally raped and had superficial stab wounds all over her body. All of those wounds would have just about killed her if she had been left to bleed to death. However, her direct cause of death was clear. Three deep stab wounds through her heart. Her body had also been burned from the fire that had been started in the house. Most likely, the fire was set to conceal evidence of the crimes. The Emmy told investigators some useful information. The rapist had left behind semen. There was a very low sperm count in the sample that was extracted. So this meant that they were either looking for someone who was older, had had a vasectomy, or had an injury. And this is going to completely clear Lindy Alton in the mind of police officers. The Court of Public Opinion is a different story, but Lindy Alton did not have any injuries. He clearly didn't have a vasectomy, and he was 24 years old.
1: Right, so he doesn't fit any of those clear signs.
0: Yeah. So now that the investigators were pretty certain that Lindy Alton was not responsible for the murder of Sherry, They called him back in to meet with him, and they made him more of an ally. So they had him meet with a sketch artist to describe what the male and female that attacked him and Sherry looked like. And this was nothing like Thomas Bonney from last episode. Which was one of the funniest (laughs) things ever.
1: Just want to add that.
0: Uh, This was a real sketch description. Alton gave a really detailed description as to what the two people supposedly looked like. He remembered specific details like what their hair looked like, how it was parted, where they had like certain beauty marks or moles on their faces.
1: I mean, that's really important. And that's very specific. Normally, people will say, I can't remember. It was dark out. They'll come up with like, you know, a lot yeah. of, you know, reasons why they can't give you a good description, which is totally normal. But to, for them to give that much detail is pretty uh,
0: impressive. Impressive. Like, that makes him a really good witness, but it's also 3 a.m. Like, how did he see it so well?
1: Or was he preparing for that? Yeah. Right? Like, preparing to have to do that? To describe them. Like, like prepare for the sketch artist. Prepare for the, the questioning. Prepare for all that stuff. Like, it's possible.
0: It could be. It's part of his story if he's lying about it. He also gave a description of the vehicle that the two were driving. Well... To the best of his ability, he said that it was a 67 or 69 Plymouth or Dodge, but that was all he could see in the dark. So I think it's weird that he saw their faces so clearly, but not the car. But I mean, I guess that's a little different. But no matter how well Alton described the two people he claimed were responsible for Sherry's death, the investigators could not find them. And for two years, there was no leads. And throughout these two years, like, everyone in the town thought that Lindy Alton did it.
1: Which is very surprising, right? But but at the same time, when you have a town like this, wouldn't it be easier? I mean, this is my opinion right now. But wouldn't it be easier as a community to be like, we know this guy did it, than accepting, like, the, like a stranger in their town did it? Well, right? Because th- it makes you uneasy. It would make the whole town uneasy to think. That some random person or random two people are abducting and killing people. It would be easier to just say, hey, we think it's this person because it's the most likely of suspects.
0: Well, I think it's the opposite. Oh, you do? If I lived in a small town, I would hate to think that one of us did it. Like it had to have been an outsider. But I see what you're saying where they're like, okay, we think Lindy Alton committed this crime and let's keep a close eye on him right? so he doesn't do it well, again. Well, because
1: remember, it's it's, 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 to, it's the feeling of being comfortable. No one wants to walk around their town at night and feel uncomfortable. To say it's this person would put a lot of people at ease.
0: Well, they're going to make Lindy Alton feel as if he was guilty for the rest of his life.
1: Which is pretty sad.
0: So the next time the sheriff's department had a viable lead to work with, it was in August of 1977. So two years after the crime, they were contacted by an officer at the Indiana's Boys school. One of their boys had been talking to another inmate about an unsolved murder of a woman that occurred in Knox County. He did not know if the boy was telling the truth about knowing anything, but he felt like they should reach out to the Knox County Sheriff's Department anyway and ask them if they had any unsolved crimes that fit the bill. The boy who was bragging at the boys' school was 17-year-old John Jeffers. Investigators from the Sheriff's Department went to speak with him months later in early 1978. At first, when he was brought into a room for questioning with them, he denied that he had said anything about the unsolved case from Knox County. But after hours of questioning, he changed his story and admitted that he committed the murder. He said that he was paid to kidnap the girl and murder her. Now, you have to think, he's 17 years old. So that means he was 14 years old when the crime happened because of like where his birthday lie. So Investigators are really believing that a 14-year-old was paid to, like, carry out this this kidnapping or this hit.
1: Yeah, and also driving a vehicle as well.
0: Yeah, it's a little...
1: I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, that seems just off to me.
0: Very. So his first story contradicted all of the details that the investigators knew to be true. But they continued to listen. The story that Jeffers told investigators changed each time they spoke with him but they chose to charge him with the murder of Sherry Gibson. I guess you got to solve a crime, right? Yeah. However, the confession was not enough to convict him. They wanted more information from Jeffers and he was very willing to give it. He confessed that he did not commit the murder alone, but it had not been a female with him. It was another male and his name was Ken Shaner. Shaner had been friends with Jeffers. The two of them were living together in a foster care living facility in Vincennes at the time of the murder. The boys had had minor run-ins with the law before, and they also had run away together in the past. There was a history of them being partners in crime, and Jeffers was turning on his partner so that the Knox County DA um, could give him a deal. So the district attorney charges both men, with the abduction, rape, and murder of Sherry Gibson.
1: They're obviously trying to solve this as fast as possible. I do find it a little bizarre that this, you said he was 17, right? When they yes. questioned him? Mm-hmm. like So they're questioning the 17-year-old, um, and he's just confessing. I, I find it weird to confess. And then when they say, okay, fine, like we're going to charge you with it, it's, it's not enough to convict him. So then he continues to go on about it and say, hey, I, I, I even know who helped me do this. Like, And the it,
0: story's off every it, time.
1: It's it's bizarre to me, right? So you, the story's off. You wouldn't have even been uh, a suspect or even charged if he didn't say anything. It's just... I also and then his think, age is very off as well.
0: Yeah, a 14-year-old, and then at the time, Shainer would have been 15. So a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old committing this crime, Lindy Alton would have... Describe them as being young teenage boys, and that's just not what he saw. You can't confuse two adults for two teenage boys and I mean, one look, being a woman. Yeah,
1: I, I do want to say. I mean, we have there in history, we've seen it time and time again. There can be killer kids, like killer children, stuff like that. Killer kids. Killer was, kids. Yeah, you know what I mean, though. You <laughs> yeah. know, like you know, it has happened where kids of young, uh, you know, of a young age have killed before. But right. what's odd is. You have a person walk up to your window, even at nighttime, I just want to add this, and ask for directions, okay? They're right up against your window. You're going to know if that's a kid or, or an adult, number one. And then when they tell you to come out of the car... Okay, and now they're telling you, you know, spread your legs, put your hands on a car. You're gonna know it's gonna not sound like an adult. It's gonna sound like a sports like a little squeaker. You know, like (laughs) you know, know, put your hands up. You know, like you're gonna know. So that right there, to me, is complete like BS.
0: Right. Well, I think they're also taking advantage of Jeffers at the time. I know that he was in. Indiana's boys school, like state boys school. So it's kind of like a juvenile detention center. But I mean, this is a kid that doesn't have parents, has been in this system his whole life. So he really has no one looking out for his own benefit. So he's got no one on his side. He's kind of lost in the system here. So I think maybe the investigators and those that were interrogating him several times were taking advantage of that fact.
1: I also want to add one more thing. We also have to remember, right, if there was a car, if there indeed was a car that night that they were in, where'd they get it? Did they steal it? Is there any evidence of a stolen car?
0: Well, he never admitted to or said who the people that were paying him to do this were. He said he got the car from them. Okay. But he never said who they were. So now they need to kind of look for Shainer. So Jeffers didn't know where Shainer was at the time, so a warrant was placed out in his name. As soon as the warrant hit the system, the Sheriff's Department received a call from the United States Army. Shainer was serving overseas in Germany. He had joined the Army as soon as he turned 18. Military police had arrested him, and they were informing the knox county sheriff's department that as they spoke shaner was being transported back to indiana
1: so, that's pretty crazy yeah but now if this, let's just say this isn't true this is a total betrayal the guy's serving his country now oh my right God. like let's just say he turned he's trying to turn his life around joins the military um and now he's being accused of this
0: yeah his past is catching what? up with him this is horrible another thing that makes this not make sense even further i mean there might have been an accident that might have caused this, but if they ruled out Lindy Alton because he was 24 years old and the sperm count was low in the sample, I mean, these these kids are 14 and 15. Their sperm count's not going to be low um, unless there was an accident. Like, that's the only thing that could be. So it's like you're saying that a young man couldn't have done this, but now you're saying, okay, we're going to charge people who were even younger than our first suspect. Right.
1: Your evidence does not reflect the people that are being charged. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's weird to me.
0: So John Jeffers takes the deal with the Knox County District Attorney. He pled guilty to all counts and agreed to testify against Shainer in exchange for the minimum sentence for murder. Jeffers was sentenced to 30 years in prison. The second he was sentenced, he became very vocal about his innocence. He claimed that he had given many false confessions, and that he and Shainer had never committed the crime. Ken Shainer's trial began in October of 1978. The only evidence that the prosecution had was the testimony of John Jeffers. However, when Jeffers took the stand, he did what he was supposed to do. He told the truth. He said that he had lied, that he had never committed the murders, and neither did Shainer. He had made up the whole thing. And at this point, the prosecution had to rest because it was all they had. The defense called in expert witnesses to discuss how the physical evidence pointed away from Shainer. And finally, they called Lindy Alton to the stand. He said that without a doubt, Ken Shainer and John Jeffers were not the people who had taken Sherry. The description that he gave to the sketch artist were the people that had taken her. So Shainer, of course, was found not guilty and was with an apology, allowed to return to duty in Germany.
1: Why would he say that he... <laughs> Why are these people doing this?
0: Okay. Well, there's many reasons. Okay. Well, Jeffers might have lied about committing the crime and the involvement for Shayner for two separate reasons. First, um, he would have known about the crime because he was in Vincennes at the time. And this makes sense that he knew all of the information because when... Jeffers was making his confessions he was only saying things that made sense that were told by the media but all of the details that the police didn't tell the media Jeffers didn't know so that's why his account was totally different from what really happened because he was trying to fill in the gaps of what the media wasn't told and all of those gaps he tried to fill in weren't correct so he didn't know the information kind of but that makes sense because he was in Vincennes at the time and the crime was massive when it took place it was all over the place and the first reason why he might have made this up is because Jeffers liked to make himself look tougher than he was. He often bragged or said he did things he didn't, so he looked tougher than he did. And, and you know what? He really had to. He was a small kid that was in this juvenile detention center and would eventually be sent to prison, and he wanted to uh, like, establish some street credit for himself. You know what I mean?
1: Right. I mean. I mean, that makes sense a little bit. It's just I would never put myself... In a position where I could be put away for 30 years. If that went the wrong way, okay.
0: No, it did. He's in jail for 30 years, though.
1: No, but I'm saying the other the other person as well.
0: Well, now this is why he dragged Shaner into it. Jeffer's girlfriend, while they were out and living together in this foster home, Jeffer's girlfriend had been cheating on him with Shaner. Then she left him for Shainer and got pregnant. And then that's why he joined the army.
1: Okay. So this is, okay. I get it. This is revenge. I get it now. But then I
0: guess he had a change of heart when he realized, holy shit, like I'm sentenced to 30 (laughs) years here. Things are getting real. Yeah. So in the end, Jeffers admitted that he lied and Shainer went free. The same could not be said for Jeffers himself. I mean, he can't, he already pled guilty. And was sentenced to 30 years. You can't just say, I lied, and then be expected to be let out of prison.
1: Yeah, which shows, in my opinion, it shows his immaturity.
0: But it is, I mean, he could have went on with it and said, Shainer did it too. So it does show that, like, I mean, he might have been looking out for himself for his appeals. But, like, at least he didn't bring Shainer down with him. Well,
1: it shows the remorse, but it doesn't show his, you know, Maturity. Maturity.
0: In 1983, John Jeffers gave up his right to appeal after he'd lost two cases. Despite the fact that his foster family at the time of the murder, a pastor, provided an airtight alibi for him, he lost his appeals.
1: I mean, that's pretty crazy. I mean, if you're trying to appeal and there's like an air, you know airtight alibi for this guy and he's already come out and said that he lied, I mean, which is stupid, but you know... It's kind of weird how they would just keep him in there. I guess it's because they don't want these people to come out once they've been convicted.
0: Well, I think that it would reflect poorly on the whole system because they maybe didn't look into the investigation as much as they should have. They didn't look into his confession as much as they should have. But I do think it's strange that he lost those two appeals, especially with the alibi and the fact that Shainer was um, considered not guilty And the fact that the sperm count was low, I mean, all they would have to do is test his sperm. You know, DNA testing wasn't really there. That would exonerate him right on the spot if this was today, but fortunately it wasn't. And, you know, John Jeffers just felt like he was in a desperate situation. So in 83, he gave up his right to appeal and he bought pills off of other inmates and hoarded the ones he was given. And one night he took all of the pills that he had accumulated and he committed suicide.
1: Wow. That's really sad.
0: It is really sad. For years after the case went unsolved, it became legend in Vincennes. What had happened to Sherry Gibson? Most of those who were around when the crime was committed believed that Lindy Alton had not been honest with law enforcement. Neighborhood gossip followed him around his entire life. He'd been pinned a murderer. Alton tried to ignore it. He would eventually go on to get married and have a son. But in 1998, he died in a brush fire. And those that knew him best have spoken out and stated that what happened to Sherry that night haunted him for the rest of his life. He was also very upset about the fact that people in the town that he loved could have believed that he had anything to do with her death. He would go to his grave with no answers and a good portion of the town believing that at best he was a liar and at worst a murderer.
1: That's pretty sad. I mean, it's like um, really no one's winning here because, she, you know, her murder has been unsolved. It stayed unsolved, right? I mean, to this moment. Um,
0: but there's two additional victims, and I two, feel.
1: Right, true. Because we don't know. We don't know. Um, who's innocent? Or well, I mean, it's hard. I mean, Alden, for all we know, could have been involved, or maybe he really, truly wasn't, and yeah. he had to bear that. You know that you know his entire life, and the thing is that if you you know you're getting to the end of your life. I mean, I know he died in a brush fire, but you go your whole life either knowing that you did something or you, or not or not or you don't know anything, and you hold that to the grave, which would mean that you just don't know. Like you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Not knowing is like a being in a prison in and of itself. Right.
1: I mean, if you did know, I mean, I, I mean let's say I knew something, I, I couldn't live with that. I'd have to let somebody know before I die. Right. Right?
0: Well, 26 years after Sherry Gibson was kidnapped, raped, and murdered, the Knox County Sheriff's Department received some interesting information. A woman entered their office and stated that she had information regarding an unsolved homicide. She had told her story to her brother who was a police officer in Georgia and he had encouraged her to tell the police in Knox County just what happened in 1975. And at this time, it's 2001. Her name is Ella Mae Dix. The woman was very nervous and seemed very quiet. The investigator that took her into his office to speak thought that she was probably related to a victim of some sort he certainly did not think that the 46 year old woman sitting in front of him would have been involved in a murder but she had been ella told the stunned investigators that she had been involved in the kidnapping and murder of sherry gibson when she was 20 years old could she have been the woman in Alton's sketch
1: oh my god yeah
0: It was a hard story to believe, but the investigators, as most in the department were, were familiar with the details of the case. So Ella was detailing things that had not been revealed to the public, and actually, she did look like the adult version of the woman in the sketch that Lindy Alton had described decades previously. Ella told the now two investigators in the room that when she was 16 years old, she did not have a good home life. Her father was abusive and she just needed to escape. She also didn't have many friends and felt like the boys that went to her school with her didn't really pay any attention to her because she was from a bad family and the bad part of town. So she took a job as a waitress at a local diner. While working there, she began talking and flirting with the owner's son which would be a cute way to say you met your boyfriend, but that was not the case here. Wayne Gully was 13 years her senior, meaning he was 29 years old and flirting with a 16-year-old girl. And not only was Gully 29, but he was married to his second wife and had two children. Oh,
1: great. Stand-up citizen we got here. So
0: he's a bag. Yeah. So things seemed to escalate in the relationship between Ella and Gully during a New Year's Eve party between uh, that the employees at the restaurant had. Okay. So that night they had flirted heavily and danced together the entire night. And I know you're grossed out now, but things are only going to go downhill from here. It is very strange that the employees of that restaurant were like, okay, with that taking place. And his father was too.
1: I was just thinking that. (laughs) yeah.
0: Like, ew. So Gully invited the 16-year-old over to his house to babysit while he went out drinking with his friends. His wife was away visiting family. And when he returned to the house, the two had sex. And I feel like I don't even want to say that it was sex. It was, although it wasn't illegal, it's unethical on so many different levels. So, so, so many different levels. Oh, yeah. Disgusting. So the reality was that Wayne Gully had manipulated Ella Mae Dix. He saw that she needed love and attention, and he preyed upon that by giving it to her. Ella felt as if she had been swept off her feet by this charming ex-Marine. And as the two continued their affair, he promised her that he was going to leave his wife for her. And that they would get married and have a beautiful life together, right? Everything a neglected and abused 16-year-old girl wants to hear. I'm going to take you away.
1: It's really sad.
0: It is. So within a year of the two being together, Wayne Gully did file for divorce from his second wife. He then began dating Ella, who was a senior in high school.
1: This is so weird.
0: Well, are you ready for it to get weirder? No. (laughs) He took her to the senior prom at thirty years old. What? Okay. Like imagine like saying, Well, this is my boyfriend Wayne, he's thirty, like at prom. (laughs) Also imagine going to prom as a thirty year old. Like I've had to do that, but I'm a chaperone and I'm getting paid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But like being a thirty year old getting ready for a prom,
1: I don't know. It's very, very odd.
0: I'm so glad. They, so like you can't take someone to prom now who's twenty one or older, obviously, because like they could buy alcohol and you don't want them to to bring it in. But I mean, I think even if someone were like twenty and wanted to come to prom, when they, because I'm the senior advisor for the high school, like if someone handed me that permission slip, I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with this person that wants to come to prom at twenty years old? Like, aren't you embarrassed? Yeah. Like, even 20. So imagine 30.
1: Yeah. Like that's, that's so weird. Dude. I'm sorry. I don't know.
0: So Ella stated that it was around this time that their relationship began to turn a little sinister. He would ask her to dress up in provocative clothing for her and make her pose in various sexual positions as he took pictures. She said that at the time she was flattered by it all, um, that it meant that he thought she was attractive. However, in retrospect, she knew that he was trying to slowly introduce her to his sexual perversions.
1: That is just so weird. It's disgusting.
0: Well, he's grooming her. Oh, that's horrible. That's what the term is for it. So when the diner that the two both worked at closed, Gully went back to work as an industrial electrician. So this was a job that he had before his father kind of wanted him to manage the diner for him. So he told Ella that because he was making decent money during this time, that he didn't want her working. So she stayed home all day. Her job was to keep his house clean, prepare meals for him, take care of his children when they were there, which of course was not often because you can't imagine wife number two was too happy about him running away with a 16-year-old girl. And Ella felt isolated. He was keeping her from her family, her friends, the outside world. The only person that she had was him, so of course this is him continuing to groom her. And it was during this time that he also began to get violent with her. He would choke her up against walls, slap her when she didn't do things the way he liked, and he also began to get violent during sex. This was something that she just accepted from him because she was used to growing up with abuse. It was normalized for her, and you know it's a cycle of abuse that unfortunately happens. Abusers can spot a victim or someone who's susceptible to manipulation a mile away, and that's what I believe happened here with Wayne Gully and LMA Dix.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no words to describe what a horrible human being you have to be to do that. To somebody it's just like so, someone that's so young and impressionable and taken advantage of even before this dude even came into the picture you know what i mean like that's horrible that's just that's disgusting on so many levels
0: right after the physical abuse started the couple's living situation got worse um i know it seems like it can not get worse but it does and it's going to happen several times gully wanted ella to start working so he had her apply for a job that he said it was the only job that she was allowed to do and that was to become a stripper gully was at this point heavily involved in alcohol and drugs he also had married ella at this point right so she felt like Okay, even like I put up with all of that, I proved my love for him, and then I got rewarded by getting married. Like their whole relationship was about Ella having to prove that she would do anything for him, And that's when he rewarded her. So like that became their unhealthy and toxic dynamic.
1: And also, let's talk about the fact that, like, oh yeah, I didn't degrade her enough. Now I'm going to make her a stripper. Like it's just when she doesn't want to she doesn't to want be. to be. That's horrible.
0: Right. And for reasons that Ella believed most likely had to do with um, him owing money to people, definitely for um, his drug and alcohol addiction. And he also gambled occasionally that he would move around locations frequently. So every time they moved, Ella would have to get a job at the nearest strip club. And she didn't enjoy working at strip clubs. She didn't want to do it. But she did like the fact that she was able to get out of the house. And it was the only job that he would allow her to have. So she was kind of like forced to do it for freedom.
1: That is so sad.
0: Yeah. So Gully joined also at this point a swingers club when um, Ellie was only 19 years old. He would tell her that she had to have sex with those men as he watched. And she said she never wanted to do those things. But he told her that it was the only way that she could prove her love to him. So she did and because he was into drugs and alcohol that also meant that she had to be into drugs and alcohol and she had to do the same amount that he did because that was again her showing her love. So it's again this she is claiming to the investigators that throughout their relationship she had to do things that she didn't want to do in order to prove her love for him. And at this point she is now so isolated that there is no way that she can leave because all she has is him you know financially emotionally and um, in so many different ways and you know this is the whole gambit of everything that could be done you have coercive control you have grooming you have uh physical abuse sexual abuse it's it's really quite sad what this girl has gone through before she's even turned 20 years old
1: that's really true I, I, and it's hard like like, I'm sure for her now, like, it, that's a hard thing to, like, rebound from. Right. You know, that's a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse for so long. It's like her whole life has been, abu- like, just a straight up abuse. Yes. That's, that is, that really is I don't true. even have words for that. That's horrible. I don't even know.
0: So, Ella said that around 1974, Gully got a job at a mine in southern Indiana. And there, things escalated even further. I know you're thinking, how could they get worse? Well, the drugs, drinking, and the swinging wasn't enough for Gully any longer. He was getting bored. He told Ella that he wanted to begin breaking into homes. He wanted like that adrenaline rush. She agreed because, you know, she would do anything for him at this point. She said that it was like the swinging. By asking her to do it, he was testing her. She needed to prove how much she loved him. So she agreed to begin breaking into homes. His plan was to stake places out and then when the homeowners were gone, he wanted to break in. So she said that they had broken into dozens of homes throughout southern Indiana. They wouldn't take a lot of things, just small valuables, uh, something that was easy to carry out. But to Gully, it wasn't about the stealing; It was more about the thrill of it all, Right. He wanted the adrenaline rush from it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's people are like that. Like where it's not even like the monetary value of any item or anything. It's just to just perform the, like the deed of (laughs) breaking, breaking, entering B and (laughs) ease, man.
0: After a while, they were getting really good at this process. And one of the homes that they broke into was the home of an Indiana state trooper. Ella and Gully had broken in while the man was sleeping with his wife upstairs. His gun belt was lying out and Gully chose to take it. This, Ella said, made her nervous because now he had a three fifty-seven Magnum. So at this point in the story, Ella was at the night of the murders. She said that Gully was beginning to get tired of these break-ins. They weren't as exciting anymore because they had done it so many times. And as they drove around Knox County at around 11 p.m., Gully suggested that they go get a girl. Ella agreed that they should. She thought that he was referring to them picking up a woman at a bar or a hotel. Both things they had done before, and then the couple would just spend the night with her. The couple drove around for a few hours, and they ended up in Vincennes. As they were driving, they passed a car that was parked off of the road. The lights were on and shining, you know, like, out into where the trees were. Gully stopped his car and looked at Ella. Let's go check it out, he said. He pulled behind the car and told Ella to wait there, that he was going to go ask for directions and scope out the scene. Gully got back to the car and reversed it. It was a couple of kids, he told her, and they started to drive down the road. And then Gully turned to her and said, "They were making out. We should go back." And he doubled back, with his lights off, and parked behind the car.
1: So weird. It's, but like it's but, so, ins- but it is insane to me though how his escalation, um, you know, this slow like rise to like murder.
0: Yes, and that's what, you know, it was like nothing was ever enough for him. He needed more and more and more.
1: But I wonder if it w- like at this point is if it's his personality or the drugs or a combination of the two you know because i mean i, I feel f- like that it 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 messes with decision making
0: well i think that it did i think the drugs and the alcohol did have a factor in it but when we go through the crime and like the things he did, like he did have a gun, but he chose not to use the gun because he was totally aware that this was a state trooper's gun and the bullet could be traced back. Like he made conscious decisions to n- try to not get caught for this crime. Right. So I don't think it was done in like a drunken or drug fueled uh, night. I think this was something that he'd wanted to do for a while. And I think that he escalated the way he did over the, this period of four years because he found in Ella May Dix the perfect victim, unfortunately. Right. And it gave him the confidence to escalate. I'm, I'm sad, but it's true. So Ellis said that it had all happened so fast. Gully told her that he was going to take control of the situation, He was going to take the man out of the car, and it was her job to get the girl. He instructed her to treat the girl the same way that he was treating the guy. He ran out of the car and pulled the man from the front seat. He had a gun to his head. She knew that she had to go grab the girl from the passenger side, so she did. Before he left the car, Gully had given her a knife that she was supposed to use for her to take the girl ella said that she had heard the man call out not to hurt her and she called back we're not going to hurt her which is an interesting detail that wasn't told to the media so this is is what happened and it correlates with what lindy said like he said the woman called back we're not gonna hurt her and that's what ella said she said
1: you're right we're not gonna so i mean this is like proof yeah
0: because ella told the investigators that she never thought the intentions were to hurt the woman so that's why she said it at this point ella stated that she was really drunk she said that as they were waiting there she had drinking a half a bottle of vodka oh my god like while they were because think about it when they drove back they waited an hour while the couple was still in the car
1: that's true yeah
0: So Ella told Sherry to get into the car first, so the girl would eventually be sandwiched between her and Gully as they drove. She was holding Sherry at knife point. The woman was terrified. Ella whispered to her that everything was going to be all right. They just wanted to have fun. They watched on as Gully pistol whipped Lindy Alton, took him down to the ground, stole his wallet, and then put him in the trunk. You also have to think investigators thought that Lindy Alton was lying about being put in the trunk because his own rope was used to tie him up.
1: Okay. That yeah, that's actually true though. <laughs> it's Where it's weird. like, um what? <laughs> yeah.
0: So he returned to the vehicle and reversed out of there, taking Sherry Gibson away as Lindy Alton was locked in the truck. So the trunk. So this means that he was telling the truth the whole time.
1: And it said that nobody believed him.
0: I know. It is a weird story, though. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. So, Ella said that she didn't remember the drive because she was falling in and out of sleep because she was so drunk. She was basically passing out versus falling asleep. And Gully kept hitting her from his position in the driver's seat to wake her back up. At one point, Ella said that Gully hit her to wake her up and that when she was up, she realized that Sherry had actually tried to take the steering wheel from Gully and was trying to crash the car. And Ella had to hold her back so Gully could regain control of the car again. So she almost caused an accident and was trying to get away. Yeah. Eventually, they stopped at an abandoned farmhouse, which we know was only seven miles away from the site where she was taken. And once there they drove far enough into the farmhouse so their car wouldn't be seen by the street. And Ella said this must have been something that Wayne Gully had planned because as they were driving around before they saw the car, they didn't notice the abandoned farmhouse. Okay. Sherry guessed that she must have fallen asleep in the car because the next thing she knew, she was woken up by her husband screaming her name from inside the house. She walked through the opened front door of the abandoned home and saw that he was kneeling over the woman, stabbing her with a knife. She yelled to him, what are you doing? And he stood up with the knife. The woman crumbled on the floor. He told her that she needed to help and he gave her the knife and told her to stab the woman in the heart. And again, like she had been doing for four years, she said she listened to him. And she proved her love for her husband by stabbing Sherry Gibson in the heart three times. She recalled that she stabbed her in the middle of her chest, and she made the most horrifying gasps for breath. She said that those sounds haunted her to that day. Before the couple left the house, they set it ablaze. And as they drove away, Gully told her that what just happened would solidify them forever. He said... I might have kidnapped and raped her, but you're the one who murdered her.
1: I mean, the sad part is it's kind of right in a way. Yeah, like he knows now that she'll never tell on him because she's the, well, well. I mean, she isn't a police station at the moment, but um, it shows that like if you tell on me and you get me in trouble, you. you're going to implicate yourself because you you you're the one that have you know has murdered her. So yeah, that's kind of rough.
0: And now he's establishing. I can do whatever I want and you're going to have to help me because I have this over you.
1: Correct. And you don't think that was planned? He yeah. wanted her to, you know, that was the goal.
0: Eventually, this was what he wanted to yeah. do. And now that was the story that Ella Dix told investigators 26 years after the murder. Now, let's just break that confession down a little bit because we do have to take into account several things. First, the fact that 26 years has passed. So obviously, details are going to change over time. And, you know, we change stories in our mind to protect ourselves or to alter details to benefit us more. You know, I, listen, I 110% believe that L.M.A. Dix was an abused and manipulated young woman because at this time she's only 20 years old. She was abused and tortured by this sick older man who was horrible groomed her and got her to become programmed to do anything that he says to prove her love for him in order to get any kind of positive reinforcement from him uh which it seemed like she hadn't received her entire life. I totally get that. I'm not saying she's not abused, but I think that some of these details in this confession are convenient, right? She was the one that had the knife. So is she saying that once they passed out in the car like she passed out in the car once they got to this abandoned house that she didn't come in with her husband? Like, that's what she's trying to claim, that she had nothing to do with the rape. She wasn't there for that. Is it a possibility that she went into the house and watched her husband rape this woman? I don't think that... I think this might have been something that they've even done before.
1: Well, I mean, look, you know, I'm just going to say if they're used to, you know, swingers... And, and kind of like him watching his wife have sex with other guys. And vice versa. And so vice versa.
0: They have like... Yeah. What she was saying in the confession is that they had gotten girls before. Right. Which is totally different than like a consensual, sexual relate- swinging sexual relationship. Well,
1: I'm just saying there's a build yeah. up to the comfortability. I agree with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's. I think it's possible that she probably was there watching that happen. Yeah,
0: I think that her role maybe was diminished in her own mind over time and she may have wanted to believe that she didn't know that was taking place but she's claiming that she heard her husband yelling her name for her but she didn't hear the screams of a woman being brutally raped and stabbed because there were superficial stab wounds all over her body kind of like a torture so was she there? Was she holding her down I, I we don't know what her role truly was because I think she was still ashamed twenty six years later.
1: I mean, but to come forward, I mean is very brave, even though she's done all of this, yeah, you know,
0: I think she was really trying to turn her life around, and she had confessed this crime to her brother, and her brother convinced her like you can't move on with your life. He was a police officer until you confess to this because it's going to haunt you for the rest of your life.
1: I mean, you have to do right by, you know, you have to do right by everyone that you've, you know, you've hurt or killed, you know, like all the family members that are involved in this that are not even really, we're not even shedding light on all those people that were concerned about her. Like imagine all those people that are affected, right? You want to bring closure to those people you want to bring, even if it means that you're going to possibly now go to jail for confessing this, it's the right thing to do.
0: Well, and that's what Ella May Dix did say, is that she want, wanted to bring closure to the families of everyone that was involved. Because you have to think about it. At this point, there's three victims in this case. There's Sherry Gibson, whose life was brutally taken from her and her family suffered for it. Lindy Alton had to live his whole life as a guilty man in his own town. And he died without ever being vindicated. And Jeffers committed suicide after wrongful, like a false confession.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many people affected by it. So for her to come out, tell this, you know, long, you know, long story. It was about, brave of her. To yeah. Do. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it sucks that that's that happened, but this isn't just someone that just committed a murder. I mean, this is someone that was controlled by in every aspect of her life. I mean, I mean, this is this yeah. is. I mean, the control is insane. The amount of control that he needed to establish with her all the time is insane.
0: And I'm not saying that what she did wasn't something that was coerced from her. I just think that when it comes to making confessions, especially almost 30 years after the event, in order to protect herself, she may have diminished her role slightly. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Well, now this is wonderful. The police had a confession... But they also had new problems. Lindy Alton, the man that was able to identify the kidnappers, had passed away. And Ella had no idea where Wayne Gully was, as they had divorced a few years after the murder. What they did still have were the sketches. And the woman looked very much like Ella Mae Dix. And the investigators were eventually able to track down Wayne Gully. At 60 years old, he had been married six times but he had never been in trouble with the law and was working on his second master's degree when investigators knocked on the door he was shocked to see them they said that they were there to talk about his ex-wife and he laughed and said which one i mean god he's been married six times
1: (laughs) yeah that's true
0: he offered the men coffee and sat with them at the kitchen table They asked him if they could record the conversation, and he agreed. They asked Gully about his life, and he was all too eager to tell them the story. He took them through his life and his six marriages quite quickly and with ease. They then asked him if he knew anything about the murder that occurred in Vincennes in 1975, when he lived in southern Indiana, and he said that he didn't remember any of it. He didn't even remember the crimes happening. And of this, investigators were quite skeptical because he was so detailed about the other aspects of his past. And they knew that in 1975, the murder was a very big deal throughout southern Indiana. So during the interview, they were kind of questioning his memory and they kept asking him to recall things to prove he does have a good memory. He's just choosing to forget this. And... Gully did go on to say a few incriminating things during this interview. He said that the sketch did look like him and Ella. And at one point he asked, could I have done this and maybe blacked it out? And that's why I can't remember it.
1: So he's just trying to like claim that like uh you know that he has memory problems now no i think
0: he was like trying to say like in conversation like no i know i didn't do it i mean unless i blacked it out like he was kind of saying it like that
1: okay Okay. but i
0: mean it does sound incriminating and it was being recorded so with this being the only information they had about the case since it had happened investigators believe that they had enough to charge gully with the murder in august of 2003 the trial began obviously the only thing that prosecutors had was the testimony of his ex-wife the only other evidence that the police had because there was no physical evidence was the tapes from the interview when investigators had first talked to him which given the comments about the sketches and the blackout was totally incriminating you could also say that poetically alton with the creation of the sketches finally cleared his name from the grave.
1: I mean, I'm really happy about that, actually.
0: The testimony and evidence given in trial was very damning. During the trial, Gully had given a TV interview with a local reporter. He said that Ella should not be trusted. She was unstable and an alcoholic. He just couldn't believe that this case was coming down to a he said, she said, and he didn't think it was fair. There's a lot of things I don't think are fair. Wayne Gully, and you did most of them in this case.
1: Yeah, seriously.
0: And the jury thought the same thing. He was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. I mean, that's the rest of his life. He's 60 years old already. Right. Ella Mae Dix pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, and she received 15 years. Finally, although I'm sure later than they would have liked, the family of Sherry Gibson had answers and justice. Lindy Alton's name was finally cleared. So I think that was just nice that all of the families received justice because Alton's family also said that they were really happy for the Gibsons, but they were also grateful that Lindy's name had been cleared as well.
1: No, definitely. I, I think, see, like, it. unfortunately, sometimes in cases like this, You have to either wait an extremely long time or sometimes you never even find out. So you have to think, if she didn't walk into that, you know, you know, have that little talk with herself and her and her brother and walk into that police station and tell them about everything that she, you know, went through and and, and dealt with and did herself. No one would know. No one would even know. And she and that dude would have got away with it. And that's actually the scariest part. Because I'm sure nobody had a even an ounce of suspicion. That he had any involvement.
0: No, he would have gotten away with yep. it.
1: That's so scary.
0: But I think that, and this just goes to speak about the character of LMA Dix, is that she didn't want to live the rest of her life or possibly die not having confessed to this crime. Yeah. That was a good one. It was really good. All right. So before we go, we want to thank our new patrons on Patreon. So thank you so much for joining our Patreon family. Lucy... Amy Ostbay, Mindy Easterwood, Abby, Destiny Esper, Sophie Haworth, Sam Beebe, S. Clark, Danielle Rose, Jay Thompson, Caroline Arbuckle, Nadia Fisher, Chris Quinn, Erie Ava, Molly Marshall Berger, Katie Lawrence upped her pledge to $10, Dan in Oregon, Sheamus, Michelle Reimer, Amy Riley, Grace Mickish, and Kelly Buffone. I know that some of you guys have come back so we really do appreciate you coming back and spending more time with us. Yes thank you. So we want to say double thank you to you guys and we hope you're enjoying all of those extra episodes. We can't wait to bring more to you this month. All right guys we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.
1: Bye guys.